Not many of us know when we're very young just what course our life is going to take. At the age of 19, Johnny DeFrancesco knew exactly what he didn't want. He'd watched his single mum juggling and struggling with two jobs working around the clock to bring up three kids, and he learned that grit, determination and very hard work was a recipe that he needed for business success, personal satisfaction and financial security. Fiercely independent and driven to make his mark, Johnny opened his first business at 19, was running seven businesses by the age of 23, and fast forward to today, he sits at the helm of the International Grady Restaurant and Retail Empire. His Neapolitan pizza was named the best in the world at the World Pizza Championships in Italy, where he beat 600 competitors from 35 countries and he now plans to continue his international expansion. But underneath all this is a man who is insatiably hungry to learn and perfect his craft, who relishes the thrill of the chase and who takes each and every failure as a learning opportunity. Here's our chat with Mr Pizza, Johnny DiFrancesco. Take us back to the 12-year-old Johnny when your mum bought you a pair of runners but they weren't the runners that you wanted. Yeah. I feel bad even telling this story when it comes from that point because I remember her buying me a pair of, and I think they were called tracks, and I hated them that much because, you know, I was going to school and everyone had, you know, Nikes and Adidas and blah, 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 and I was turning up with these, you know, not cool sort of runners and so I never forget getting on my push bike and going down a really steep hill like really steep hill and I went as fast as I possibly could and I didn't stop the bike with my brakes I actually put my foot on the back of my tire and stopped the bike with my shoes so by the time I got to the end of um, the hill I had this really massive indent in in the runner so you know pretty much you know ruined them and that was my way of saying, oh, you know, they're, you know, they're, no, they're not good. Look what happened. And, you know, and I, I'll never forget the look on my mum's face. And I was like, oh, no, what have I done? Um, so that's when I decided, you know, I think if I want something, I need to go and get it myself, you know. So there was quite an early, early drive there to be motivated and independent. But mm. what did the Nikes represent? I don't know. I think, you know, a 12-year-old um, child wanting something that's material is sort of making you feel better around other 12-year-old kids. You know, you're not mature enough to understand that it doesn't matter what you wear and what you have and et cetera at that point. But, you know, it's more about, yeah, just fitting in and being part of a 12-year-old group, you know. Like I look back on it now and I think, oh, you bloody selfish uh, person but it wasn't that I was being selfish it was more about me wanting to fit in I think and I was like the outcast you know there were things that were going on in my life that weren't going on in other people's lives and and I was always that sort of that kid oh, oh don't you know oh he doesn't have a dad or you know that sort of thing with uh, but I had a dad but just because my parents went together doesn't mean I don't have a dad but at that point you know of my life I don't think it was very uh, normal situation where parents were not together. And so to fit in, I had to do things that, you know, I had to be, I had to be the best at, at football because, you know, I, I had to be known as, as a great footballer and I had to, you know, have the best things or else, you know, people were going to outcast me or, you know, whatever the case may was, I 
would analyze it and think, okay, if I did that, then I'm going to be accepted. I look back on it now and yes, it was probably silly for me to think that way, but you're a 12 year old kid, mm. you know, there's, that's the most important thing to you at that stage. And as it is across the lifespan yeah. at every age, I mean, we're more vulnerable when we're 12, but even as adults, we're thinking, who's my tribe? Who's going to accept me? Yeah. If I make that choice, am I going to be on the outer? No one wants to be the outside cat mm. looking in. So there was something about this sense of belonging mm. as well as a strong worth ethic yeah. that you've had since forever. Mm. Like if I look at my life now currently, like I don't really give a shit what people think about me. <laughs> Uh, you know, I've got this thing, you know, it's oh, it's none of my business what you think about me. Yeah. It, it doesn't really affect me anymore. Uh, so, and I think I learned that through being independent and, you know, growing up and, and you know, I think by the, I think that hit me at the age of maybe 16, where I didn't really care anymore about what people thought about me. I knew that I was going to do something with my life. And even if people didn't believe that I would do something with my life, I knew internally I'm going to do something with my life. So I really don't care what you think about me right now. You know, you know I don't care about, you know, anything at that point. What what changed at 16 then? What kicked in? Um, I think what changed was knowing the path or at that point, no, thinking that I knew where I wanted to be and and I focused more on what is it going to take for me to get to where I want to be and one thing was to be focused and not to worry about what was happening anymore. And that's what, you know, like at 16, I had different goals than what I had at maybe 20. But at 16, I wanted to be the best drummer in the world. So I focused all of my energy on that. You know, at 16 years old, I was, you know, really focused. I'd be practicing three, four, five hours a day. You know, I didn't want to go to school anymore because that's that was my career path. And, and you know, my mum's yelling at me saying, what are you talking about? You need to go to school. You have to finish high school. And I was like, I don't care about high school because this is my my dream, my goal. This is what I'm going to do. And, and that lasted for about three months. I actually didn't go to school for three months. Wow. I just, I, I refused to go to school. And so I did that for three months and then, you know, I could see, you know, my mum was supportive, but I could see that she was a little bit, you know, maybe she wasn't upset. She was probably worried about me and you could see that look on her face and then I'll go back to school. And sometimes I regret that I actually did that because I think if, if I put the energy into what I loved at that point, would I have been maybe as successful as I am today? Who knows? Um, and that's probably one regret, but it's okay because that molded me into now because I understood that those three months of really putting my head down and, and you know, practicing and putting the hard work in, et cetera, has, um, you know, trans transitioned into this. I, it, didn't, it didn't affect me, you know, like hard work has, not, has never scared me off. And that's been, you know, people say, oh, you know, long hours. What's long hours? I don't even know what that means. <laughs> well, when did you know that drumming wasn't going to be what you put all those hours into? Um, I really started to love cooking. So, you know, and, and, and while I was drumming, I was still, you know, in restaurants because I was you know, at 12 years old, I got my first job and I was working in the restaurants and, you know, I was doing some part-time work, et cetera, and doing school and then drumming, et cetera. Um, but I really started to fall in love with uh, cooking and, you know, I don't know, uh, 
it was it became more of a passion than music at that stage and that's where i thought oh this is what i want to do now this is where i'm going to put all my energy in now and at 19 when i opened my first um my first uh, establishment um, i was still dr- drumming up until that stage you know I was still gigging etc and then i had to decide do i continue gigging or do i um continue with the business and that's going to take a lot i didn't expect running a business to take that much of my time so you know i had this perception in my head oh, it's, it's easy i just go in you know i'm going to open up a, a establishment what kind of establishment like it's, it's I, you're not drug dealing you're like you're not telling us no, what kind sorry, of establishment. Yeah, I, I, had, I had a, a, a cafe restaurant Okay. At 19. At 19. So how did you get the capital or the funds to, to open it? Because you'd need some sort of yeah, money. Yeah, so, you know, working from when I was a kid, I put some uh, money aside and and then I asked my mum as well if she could help me and she was very reluctant and, you know, she she put her sort of, you know, balls on the line, if you want to say that. And <laughs> I, I don't think she'd put it no, like that. No, but She it, might have. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and that's how I opened my first place. So... At that point, that's when I said I need to put the sticks down now because, yeah, it's grey and you know really wasn't making I wasn't making a living out of it and it was a, an amazing passion and I you know still till today I love it and I still practice every now and then when I got time whatever but it wasn't something that I could see a future in at that stage so I thought I need to put all my energy all my efforts into running a business. But I didn't understand what it meant to run a business because I actually thought you can be a great cook, you can be a great chef and people are going to come and this is going to be a walk in the park. And then I found that it wasn't. What does it take? Because what we know is if we fast forward by the mm. age of 23, you had seven businesses. Pretty much, so, yeah. Which is amazing. So from 19 to 23, what did you learn about how to not just start a business but but all the things that need to happen in, in order for you to grow those? Um, so I learned everything what not to do in that time. I didn't document it, and I wish I did, but I understood it. I, I you know, sort of documented it all in my brain. So what, what's bad business then? Like what were the things you should not do or that you did that didn't uh, help you? Well, there were, there were things like, you know, don't, don't underestimate what it takes to run a business. That's the first thing because a lot of people think, you know, uh, opening a business is so easy. Oh my God, like I don't, anyone says to me, oh, opening a business is so hard. No, it's not. It's the easiest thing you can ever do. It's not opening, it's running. Is They're two different things, two completely different things. You know, like I always, you know, I get asked nearly on a daily basis, oh, I'm thinking about doing a cafe. What's your opinion? I don't have an opinion because I don't know you as a person and I'm not sure how you're going to run your business. Oh yeah, but I've got the money to do it. Well, great. That's the easy part. So if you have the money to do it, you get a designer, you design it, you get a builder, you build it, and then the real work starts at opening day. And so I underestimated that side of it. But I learned, you know, I mean, over, you know, from let's say, you know, 19 to 23, um, there were so many mistakes that I made. I just, you know, sort of made mental note of that and I made sure that, I was never going to repeat those mistakes. I think that's one key factor that I learned really, really fast. What were they? What was one? What's an example of one? So many things. You know, there's the, I mean, a bit, to, to me, a biz, all businesses have the same principles. There's not, 
there's you know like you could be in tech you could be in restaurants you could be i don't know in uh manufacturing you, you doesn't matter what business you're in every business has the same principles and if you understand those principles and put a system behind every single one of them then you're one step in front um you know opening or, or operating a business because a business is just a, a great system if you've got yeah. a great system then you can run a business uh, what i believe that being a great uh chef was going to make me a great businessman is no no way that's they're two different completely different things um so i understood that that was the first thing that i learned it didn't matter how good my food was if i couldn't run this business it it meant nothing and often those are two different skill sets because when you look at create, I think of chefs, so you've, you're a muso and you're a chef. And to me, those are really creative pursuits. They're, they're, they're passionate, they're physical, sort of exploratory, expressive. And the things that I align with music and food are not with systems and not with scaling and not with what not to do in the business world. So how do you think you're able to find these two seemingly sort of contradictory parts of yourself and pull them together well let's let's talk about um being a musician being a musician if you know how to read a chart then there's a system behind that so you break it down you know you've got you've got you know your your intro your chorus etc 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 right your outro so that's a system in itself when you break it all down so People that say music is is creative, yes, but then it needs to be put down on paper. Then it becomes a system. So it doesn't matter how you look at it, everything that you do, there is always some type of, you know, process. process. Yeah, so it's like codifying creativity, bringing it into a set of like a musical score is taking it and then putting it Correct. into a, a kind of a pattern. Yeah. So how did you then... Uh, so you're recognizing it, and these principles are coming up. Did you have a mentor? How did you learn this? No, I get asked that question all the time. I've never had a mentor. I, there has never been. I've never had a business coach, a mentor, someone that you know I've looked up to in the industry. No, nothing. That I, you know, I, I, I'm not the typical chef that says I worked with such and such and they had three hats. Gave me three hats, and I became inspiration from there. And they, it wasn't any of that for me. Um, food was always part of our culture anyway. So that was the easy part. Um, I think I developed a really good palate through, um, you know, working at, you know, not bad restaurants, I would say, but also my own um, sort of my own exploring, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, yeah, I, did, I, I really can't say that I had somebody that, showed me what I should do mm. but I'm really good at picking up things really easy so you know if I sat there and watched a really good chef I can pick up faults that they're doing and I can make their a plate better than what they're they're doing it or I can make their recipe streamlined so that anyone can do it and most chefs don't have that skill mm. because a lot of chefs say that you oh, we go on taste you know what what does that mean and yeah, and wow. and that's what you've done in your business, isn't yeah. it? Is I, I know because I heard you telling a story about having systems for every part of everything in the restaurant, so that any it made me think of um, what's the movie My Fair Lady, and he's just trying to teach Eliza 
after a little, how to speak, you know, the rain in Spain. And he's mm. trying to bring, he's kind of trying to create something in her that, she, that that is not her raw material. And you said something about that, that you could take anyone, I don't know if you said literally anyone off the street, like Eliza, and make them a, a world-class pizza yeah. chef uh, honestly, in, two, in two months. Yep. Because your systems are so clear and so rigid and so precise. Yeah, and and it fast tracks somebody's learning. That's the difference. I mean, you know, you can go through culinary school and, you know, it can take you years, et cetera. Um, but if you're looking at one specific side of it, let's, you know, we talk about the pizza side. I have developed a system that anyone can learn. Like, you know, I've, so I've, I've got restaurants that are outside of Australia that I've taught people that didn't even know what a pizza was. It was like that. It was sh- a shock to my system when they said, what's pizza? And I was like, what do you mean? Like, <laughs> this is impossible. Like, everyone knows at least a, a, some form of or type of pizza because I think every country in the world, these particular people that I was teaching, they said, we've never seen it before. They'd never seen flatbread with with cheese and tomato. No, they, I, I was like shocked. Where where were they living on Earth? Or yeah, you know. <laughs> so pizza is your world, and we know in two fourteen you won the title of world pizza champion uh, at the World Pizza Championships in Italy. You beat. 600, is that right? 600 people from 35 countries as an Australian mm-hmm. coming over there. Tell us about that, um, the award and that experience. That was probably one of the, apart from my kids being born, et cetera, but that was probably one of the best days of my life, not because I won the award. Um, it was more because I became recognised for something that I love so much. Um, and in Australia, I wasn't recognised. You know, it wasn't. People didn't understand what I was doing at that point. Now today, there's plenty. I mean, most of the um, places out there, you know, people have either worked for me or I've trained them, etc. So, but you know, back in let's say 2008, when I started the brand, um, the Grady Group, there wasn't anyone making the style that I was making at that point. So, you know, I would have people come in. I even had journalists come in, and you know, like give me you know the worst score in the world for you know pizza and this is not pizza etc i actually got those articles you know because um, they were basing the metrics of successful pizza on an aussieified version or they didn't understand the nepalese way yeah they they didn't understand this style not so, nepalese sorry well, Napolitan, the style. Napolitan, yeah. like how would you describe the kind of pizzas that you do it, it it's different like so Prior to 2008, Italian pizza was known to be thin, crispy, light topping, uh, well-cooked pizza. But in Naples, that's not pizza. Uh, Neapolitan pizza is, um, it's still thin, but it's soft, pliable, very easy to fold, um, chewy. It's completely different. So when I introduced this style of pizza. Only in Naples, it, yeah, not in other in parts of Italy. No, mm. no. So everywhere, everywhere else you'll find that pizza becomes, it becomes crispier as you go up north. What's the why? Like why is there that kind of pattern? How did it come to be that that pizza was preferred or revered in Naples? Um, because it's the only pizza in the world that is made firstly by hand but also with pure natural ingredients. 
Um, so there's no saturated fats or oils. Or anything in Naples, like you mean? In Naples, yeah. Mm. So it, it's basically water, flour, salt, yeast. That's it. There's no, you know, fats in there. There's no oil, extra virgin olive. But like I see recipes, all these extra virgin olive oil, etc. They don't do any of that. So it's probably the most healthiest pizza in the world to actually eat. Then um, you, the characteristics of it, you can actually look at it and identify that it's a Neapolitan pizza. Whereas every other pizza, oh, it's pizza. <laughs> if that makes any sense. Yeah, I just love it. Is there something about Naples? So there's something about the simplicity. And it's the simplicity, yeah. Is it, is the it technique the, as well, the way you um, like stretch your pizza or, you know, like open it up. It's completely different. There's no throwing in the air. It's slapping on the bench. There's no rolling pins. There's no turning on the table. It's a specific slap that makes the crust thicker. It gets cooked only in a wood fire oven and it's cooked for 90 seconds. So it's very fast. At 400 degrees. That's right. So most Italian pizza, Italian pizza is cooked for much longer, three, three and a half, four minutes. And that's why they, you know, they roll it out really thin and becomes really crispy. And and here in Australia, people were used to eating that style of pizza. So when I introduced this, people didn't know what it was. You know, people would like. So it's of, this is too soft and a bit this? floppy. It's, it's soft. It's floppy. It's <laughs> soggy. My first review was was devastating. And when I read it, I thought to myself, are you serious? You've just described my pizza to the T and that's the way it's supposed to be, but you couldn't understand it. You know, the first review was soggy, uh, soft, not crispy um, and chewy. And I was like, yes, I've nailed yeah, it. Man. <laughs> and I'm like, Thank you. But it was funny because that first review, um, you know, got me sort of recognized in Melbourne by people that had been to Naples. So what do other people just out of interest, what do other Italians think of the Naples pizza? Are they standing by their... Um, there's mixed uh, sort of emotions about it. It, 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 you, Napolitan pizza, you either love it or you don't. There's no in-between. Because um, you taught me how to eat pizza, Johnny, with the fold, but is that only the Naples way? Because it'd be very hard to fold a crispy yeah, thin that's right. crust. Yeah, yeah so, pretty much. So you only fold in Naples? Well... Yes and no. Depends. Depends how big your piece of pizza is. Well. I mean, you know, if you're getting those New York style pizzas, then oh, yeah, you can fold that one, right? You yeah. could roll yeah, that wow. like a That's yoga right. mat. Yeah, exactly. They are massive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that is big. So, can I just go back into that? Because I'm really interested in how people, you know, not just come up with ideas for business, as you've said. That's the easy part, but how do you sort of execute on scaling yeah. those businesses and backing yourself to actually do that hard work? Yeah. Like, how many businesses have you got now? You had seven at 23, and what about now? Um, I think 11 or 12 at the moment. How, how do you define a business when you say I've got 11 or 12? Uh, I look at it as individual units So, now, but also um, – So cruise ships, I know you, you've recently been added to even more cruise ships. Is each ship a, a, a business? business? Yeah, because yeah. they're individually run um, units. They're not – like I, I look at one business, if, let's say this building had – you know, multiple different businesses out of this, then then they're multiple businesses. I define that as well. But if you're running one specific out of one building, then that's one business. So what are they, they restaurants? It's mm. seven, seven restaurants in Australia? Oh, um, no. no, not in Australia. Yeah, it'll What's be, the breakdown? It'll be seven uh, by January in, in Australia. 
We have one in New Zealand. We have a cruise line. We have um, a couple in the Middle East, one in the US. And then you've recently taken your product retail into retail. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's been a crazy transition. Um, COVID hit and I either was going to put my head in the sand or I had to think of, you know, how am I going to keep this um, business alive? Um, so we we found the premises on Ligon Street, not far away from our original uh, restaurant, and we ended up getting the um, you know, temporary lease on it, and it was a dump. Um, and, you know, people are telling me, what are you going to do here? And I said, I'm opening a supermarket. And they said, what are you talking about? And so we did it. It took us two and a half days to open. I cleaned everything out on a Wednesday. Uh, Thursday, we set everything up. So like brought in all the equipment and all the shelving. Yeah, all the shelving. We used like pallets as our shelves and we had all these pallets everywhere and I had all my boxes on the pallets with all our uh, produce displayed. I got all fridges, like just movable fridges, um, put put them right at the back and then filled everything up with our own products and then also other products. But was that the first time that you had packaged your products straight to the consumer like that in a retail setting? Well, yes and no. So when I was when I opened the first business um, when I was nineteen, it was it was a disaster. You know, we were making no money. So I thought, how am I going to make more money? So I started going around to other cafes, and I was presenting them with um, some focaccia bread that I was making. I was demonstrating, oh, you can cut in half and fill it, and and a few dallies and stuff said, oh, we're interested in this, we'll buy it. So, you know, that nearly killed me because then I was up at 4 o'clock in the morning, I was cooking them, delivering to them by about 6, 6.30. Then I'll come back, get ready and open up the um, shop. So I thought back on then, I thought, oh, I can do this. I can do this again, but I can do it differently now. I've got more products. I've got, you know, a bit more experience um, on how to do it. But also the last five years I've been um, making product that has been packed under someone else's brand because I never wanted to do any um, sort of, I didn't want to put my brand out there as a retail brand. And a lot of um, cafe and, and, you know, little restaurants in the city, they were using my product to make pizza. But not under the Grady brand. But not under the Grady mm-hmm. brand. And so it made it really easy. You know, all our ready-made meals, I understood how to package it, et cetera. And that's how retail side of it happened. And how's it going? Um, great guns at the moment. Yeah, we're setting up a, a manufacturing facility. But, yeah, we just launched into uh, Coles Local. That's our um, um, our latest one. But we're also in a lot of the IGAs and um, another really amazing retailer, which is uh, Market uh, Place, which is, you know, a lot more based fruit and veg, but they've got um, a good variety of other sort of um, products. and. Do you think there's some kind of snobbery in the industry where people say, but I'm a sh- I'm an Italian chef. Yeah, I, I don't hang out. Yeah. I don't sell to Coles. I'm a chef. There probably, <laughs> there, yeah, I don't know. There probably is or, or was. I've never been like that anyway. I've never, uh, for me, a business is, I'm not emotional over a business. I think once you start becoming extremely emotional about something, that's when things go wrong mm-hmm. because it clouds all your, um, senses, all your thoughts, all the processes, they become extremely clouded. So I've never been, like I'm not emotional over property or I'm not emotional over a car or anything like that. You know, that doesn't really, it's not me. 
So I know how to detach myself. And I think that's what's helped me transition into this really easy. Like if someone said to me, oh, I would never put my product in a supermarket. Well, that's you. That's not me. It doesn't mm. matter. Like that's great. You know, good on you. I reckon that's really powerful there, that distinction. And a lot of people take a while to learn that mm. is that you have to be rational, not emotional, because mm. you, you're you operating from a very different thinking space doing that, obviously. Um, and just getting that perspective and that distance um, and you know, being able to make better decisions. Here's a question around business. You've done so much and even during COVID, you know, pivoted and scaled. How do you know when you've done enough? You don't. What 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 defines doing enough? Like For you. Are, for me, people, yeah, but like I get asked, oh, you know, don't you have enough businesses? I don't open businesses because I want to make more money. I'm not sure if that makes sense. I do it because I like creating. I do it because I like seeing something that is there i can look at and say wow look what we've done that's awesome you know and the people behind what you know us and and they're part of it and that you know they should be proud of that and then you know after a while okay now i'm bored of that now what am i what do i do next so it's the thrill of the chase it's the yeah more more about that <laughs> you know just having that i'm enthusiastic about doing something you know, that's what gets me up in the morning. Challenge as it's well. A, it is. It's a challenge. Is it the impact on the end user as well? Or you just you just talked about what we're doing as a group. Is it, are you thinking about the gradi peeps or mm. are you thinking about the, the customer? It's it's the whole package. It's there's not one um, thing that defines it. I think it's it's everything. Without without the people behind you, you can't execute what you're doing. Mm. And without the people that are enjoying what you're doing, you can't continue having that business, you know, sustain itself and stay alive. Um, but I, I'm not sure what enough is going to ever be. I, I think um, I get bored really quickly. Yeah. What about on the, like, the really shit days and the hard days where stuff goes wrong? Do you get scared? Do you have fear that's part of your um, experience? Um, business has never scared me. I think I've been through enough shit um, that it doesn't really scare me anymore. Like I, I'm not someone that will sit there and, you know, procrastinate on a decision on do I do this or don't I do it? Do I do it or don't? It's it's very clear cut to me. I'm doing this or I'm not doing this. That's it. And you just go for it. And if you decide to do it, then you're all in. And if you decide not to do it, then you're all in not to do it. <laughs> So, Which means you're out. You're out, exactly, <laughs> right? So I don't know. Scared of business, no. What about failure? Uh, no, that motivates me. Fear of failure motivates you? Not wanting to fail? No, so I'll gear myself up to fail. What does that mean? Like how do you do that? Yeah, because I will have the expectation that if the, this is the worst case scenario, what is the worst case scenario? I'm, I'm going to fail. And if you fail, then what? And if I fail, well, then backtrack. Why did I fail? And now redo it. So and learning. Succeed. So failure. So it doesn't. No, fails never. Um, doesn't worry me. I don't, I don't. That's not in my mindset. I'm not interested. You know, if I fail, I'm not going to be disappointed. That's it. If I fail, I failed. Um, it's my fault. No one else's. There's, there's no, there's, yeah, there's. It's a lot of pressure though for you, isn't it? Or I don't know. Probably, I just, I, yeah, I, I, I don't think about it. It doesn't give me, 
it doesn't it doesn't give me any 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 stim you know stimulus nothing it's like that's it I'm done you know there's there's no way the only thing that I know 100 percent and and I've lived by this all the time and I always say I always say this if if I wake up tomorrow morning and say to myself God I hate what I'm doing that I'm that I, I've failed I need to get out there's there's no there's no point in continuing once I get up and say God I hate this why am I doing it then I need to work out an exit plan hmm. how do I get out of this because it's not doing anything for me anymore that happened to me when I had the seven um, businesses at 23 at, at 30 I hated I absolutely with all my heart hated doing it it wasn't me. I knew I could offer so much more. The money was good. The hours were great. So on paper, that looks good. It was all good on paper, yeah, whatever. I hated it, so I had to get rid of it. So it's it the challenge. So it's the growth boring. and the challenge. that you same thing. Because you had the systems day. and it was yeah. just Groundhog Day. Mm. How does this impact, because um, you're a hard worker. You said, I don't know what long hours are. That's just yeah. what I do and I've always done that. But you also a parent and a yeah. partner and a friend and a sibling and a son and all of that. So how have you navigated all of these demands, challenges, curveballs and the thrill of the chase with um, family and personal relationships? You know, if I sat here and said, oh, it's been a... Uh, simple it's not it's it is, it's been challenging you know and i think the most challenging um period was probably from the you know age of 20 to 30 that was for me the most challenging time of my life um because i didn't know how to balance things anymore it got to the point where everything was reliant on me and i had young kids and I didn't, you know, I sort of didn't know how to how to separate that, and I didn't know how to divide myself, um, you know, between my businesses and also my family. That was really hard. Like I think most of my my time was ninety percent of my time was focused on my business, and I think that's what made me really hate it at the end. Whereas today I've learned to um, balance that. You know, if if I have to be home for dinner, I'm home for dinner. If I have to go to you know a function with my family i'm there like you know but prior to that it wasn't for me it was like i can't do this and i can't do that and that was really hard but balancing for people um i think is really different on on each and every individual person um you know i believe what is balanced for me is is different for someone else what is balance for you because i actually think the word balance is bullshit yeah well there you go so what does it mean to you i think balance for me would be how can I spend time with my family, enjoy that company and enjoy it like in real time because I think today a lot of families, even though they're home, they're not present and that's really hard and that's something that I struggled with and maybe sometimes I still struggle with it because, you know, I'm very tempted all the time to, you know, get back into doing something for you know, the business and, you know, I'm trying to teach myself not to do that and I'm trying to teach myself not to talk about work at home and not, it's really hard, but I'm trying my best. And I think, you know, lately it's been me that's saying, hey, I don't want to talk about work. And At home, you mean? At home, yeah. Um, 
obviously, you know, it, it gets to a point sometimes where it's unavoidable. But if I could at home, I just, I want to switch off. And I've learned that over the years. Yeah, it's not an easy it's not an easy thing, especially when you're really devoted into what you love. It's it's not easy. Yeah, and you're carrying the responsibility of those businesses as well. So what do you, like what what do you do for you then? How have you been able to work on setting those limits around work and life? What what sorts of practices are you using? So people who are listening might be able to understand how to get that separation. I don't know. I've never analysed it. Well, let I, us do that. But for I you. but I <laughs> yeah, yeah. but I but I do feel very relaxed most times. You know when. I know that, oh, okay, one thing that I know is that when I've switched off, that's it now. I can, I can, I've become much better at doing that. And I think that's For where, the night, do you mean? Or for the, yeah, for or? the night. You know, like when I'm at work, I'm very, I'm, I'm at work, that's it. You know, I'm, my head is a million miles an hour. My brain doesn't stop, you know, mentally, physically, I'm doing what I need to do, no problem. But I think as soon as I get in the car and I know that I'm going home, for me, that's like, mm. okay, done. Which is actually something a lot of people have talked about is the loss of the commute has has screwed a lot of people in COVID because that is a time when you sort of wash off the day and you mm. think about these two domains of your life and you try and find some, even if it's slightly artificial, separation. And when that commute is a hallway <laughs> in yard boots, it's harder to shake it off. Yeah. yeah. And there's a lot of burnout, right? Yes. People haven't been able to have that divide between work and life. I mean, I think in, when you're running your own business or startup, it spills over anyway because yeah. it's occupying so much of your thought time and your work's never done. Mm. But, yeah, there's a lot of that, like just not having that clear line around that's enough, I need to stop now today and actually replenish and restore myself. And I think often in relationships um, one partner is saying to the other, okay, that's enough now, you know, come with me, mm. sit on the couch or watch a movie or mm. let's have a conversation. And the other one is sort of still spinning and their, their cogs yeah. are turning and they can't turn off. So you're saying it's not because someone in your family, partner or children are saying, hey, hang on, you're, you're owning it. Yeah. So I'm learn, I've learned to do that or I'm still learning to do that. Mm. You know? And I think that's, that's an um, extremely difficult thing to do, especially when you've been really devoted into something that you're and not just devoted but rewarded for that devotion Mm, mm. because you could say that all these years since you were 12 and you bought your nikes Mm. or started to work for your nikes (laughs) that you've been rewarded for hard work yeah not not financially but um in so many ways you've been rewarded from a mental stimulation that's very affirming to Mm. know that you've created systems and you've scaled and you've employed and so it's hard to give up that Mm. reward yeah is it the extrinsic reward or is it like external what you see or is it no nah, it's internal, it's internal. I, I don't care about the external part of it it's internal it's me yeah you like, say i feel really you know i've i've, I've driven and gratified yeah. within yeah life is tough and i need to do something with it mm. and that is a good segue to the last question that we ask all our guests on human cogs and you just said life is tough and i need to do something with it and i think the conversations we have here recognizes the toughness in life so we like to ask all our guests who do you think is doing human well in the world i probably can't think of anyone because i think everybody has a different way to approach life so there's not really one person to look at and say wow you know you've 
got it all worked out. That's mm. there's not one person that has it all worked out. It may look sometimes as though they do, but who knows what's actually behind, you know, that facade? Because there's a lot of people that have a facade. You know, if you go back onto business, I have a very very famous saying, if you want to call it that, that I always tell people: I don't want to look good going broke. There's that's not, you know, that's not in in my uh, world. There's no way that I would ever want to do that. And what I mean by that is that there there are a lot of people that, um, you know, put a, a facade or you know this sort of, uh, you know, people perceive that they're successful and and etc. But then really behind them, there's so many things that are going on that other people don't see. And so sometimes it's, you know, like you look at social media, that kills me because you look at people that are, you know, um, boasting that they're, uh, you know, rich or, you know, they're, they're doing this and they're doing that. And the younger generation are getting so, uh, you know, probably misled and, it's, and it's, it's really sad. I don't think there's one human. I think you yourself need to be the human that you look at rather than looking at some other mm. person to inspire. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us, and we really hope these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe some others in your orbit. And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com. 